It's interesting as you read through the Bible to see how different numbers show up again and again. For instance, the number 40. Have you ever thought about that? In Noah's day, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, the scripture says. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses was on top of of Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights as he was receiving the, the Ten Commandments from God. The 12 spies that went into the land of Canaan, they spied out the land and they came back with a good report saying that it was a land flowing with milk and honey. They were in that land for 40 days and 40 nights. The giant Goliath, before David slew him, came out and he taunted the armies of Israel for 40 days in a row. Saul, the king of Israel, reigned for 40 years. David, likewise, reigned for 40 years. Solomon followed up with another 40 years over Israel. This, this is kind of sounding like a broken record, isn't it? Then you get into the New Testament. Jesus fasted in the wilderness for 40 days. And then, of course, after he raised from the dead, he was on the earth for 40 days, giving evidence to people that he was alive. It's just interesting to me this, to see the number 40 and how often it appears in Scripture. Now, something that's new to me as I was looking here recently is the number 3 has a similar kind of significance. It shows up a lot. For instance, Genesis chapter 22, verse 4, God provided a lamb for it, for Abraham as he was on Mount Moriah. He was going to offer uh, his son Isaac as a sacrifice, and God provided a lamb on the third day that they were out on their journey. Then in Genesis chapter 40, verse 13, Joseph is in prison. The cupbearer joins him and He has a dream, and Joseph interprets the dream, and Joseph in turn says to him, on the third day, you're going to be released from prison. You'll be restored to your position there under Pharaoh, and that is exactly what happened. Exodus chapter 19, verses 10 and 11, the people of Israel were told to prepare themselves because on the third day, the Lord would come down to them on the mountain, and he did. Then in Joshua chapter 1, verse 11, the people were were to cross the Jordan on the third day, and they were to take possession of the land. 1 Samuel chapter 5, the Ark of the Covenant was stolen from the people of Israel by the Philistines. They put it in their, their, uh, their God's temple that God was named Dagon, and on the third day that the Ark was in that temple, the, the idol of Dagon fell to his face, and his head and his hands were severed from his trunk. Esther chapter 4, the queen called for a fast to take place for three days before she went in to the king to plead for her people. And then, of course, Jonah. You know about Jonah. He was in the belly of the fish for three days. And then in the New Testament, Jesus was in the belly of the earth for three days before he arose from the dead. In the Bible, the third day was a day of hope. It was a day of salvation. John Ortberg goes so far as to call us a third-day people. 
Matt Proctor says this, and I quote from him, The third day is the day when lives are saved and prisoners are set free. It's the day when God comes down and the people enter the promised land. The day when idols tumble and God's people are saved. The third day is the day stones are rolled away and a crucified carpenter comes back to life. We really should be a third day people. I had a conversation just recently with a fellow right here in town. He actually referenced a scripture out of Acts. And for you that are new to us today, or maybe you haven't been here for a while, we have been preaching from the book of Acts since the first of the year. And so as this fellow referenced a text out of Acts, it it definitely caught my attention. He was talking about Acts chapter 5, where Peter and the other apostles have been arrested because of their preaching and they have been brought before the Sanhedrin council and the council warns them to stop bringing the blood of Jesus upon their head. And Peter's response to them was, we must obey God rather than man. And it was about that time that Gamaliel, one of the uh, council members, calls for an executive meeting. And so the disciples are sent out and Gamaliel stands up and he addresses the council. He says to them, listen guys, if this movement, of, if this movement is of God, then we, we're not going to be able to fight it. Now if it's not of God, it will fade away in time. And my friend, as we're talking with each other, he's, he's referencing this text out of Acts. And he says to me, certainly Christianity has been around for centuries, but so have a lot of other world religions as well. Does that mean that all of them are from God because they have not faded away? That's a pretty good question. I had never been asked that question before. And so I was thinking of the answer and praying to the Lord as my mind was, was turning. And I said to him, no, that, that doesn't mean that they're all from God because we have to recognize that, that Satan has power too. Now, the difference between Christianity and all of these other world religions is our leader's tomb is empty. Now, take for instance, if a person is a Muslim, at one time in his life, he has to travel to the other side of the world during Ramadan, and he has to march around Muhammad's tomb with thousands upon thousands of other Muslims. And take note, Muhammad is in his tomb. Not so with Christianity. You can go to Jesus' tomb, but his body is not there. Our leader's tomb is empty. And I said to him, we are the only ones in the world who can make that claim about our leader. Muhammad's tomb is occupied. Jesus' tomb is empty. Buddha's tomb is occupied. Jesus' tomb is empty. The resurrection of Jesus that we are celebrating today is the centerpiece of the preaching in the first century church. You just read through the book of Acts, take a look at the sermons that are preached there, and you can see very quickly that the the resurrection was a part of nearly every sermon. 
And, and actually, I want to give to you a taste of that this morning, just to, to look briefly at some of the sermons in Acts and make that point very clear to you. Maybe you'll follow along with me in your Bibles. If you don't have your Bible, you can look on the screen and you can read along with me. This first sermon is by Peter on the day of Pentecost. Let me read to you chapter 2 of Acts, beginning with verse 22. It says, Men of Israel... Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God, here it is, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Look at chapter 3 of Acts, verses 14 and 15. Again, Peter is preaching here to a different crowd. He says pretty much the same thing to them as what he has said earlier. He says, But you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Again, I want to make clear to you that the preaching in the early church... It was centered around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Peter again is preaching. He says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. Look at chapter 10 of Acts. Verses 39 through 41. Peter is preaching here to the house of Cornelius. He says, we are witnesses of all the things he did. This is speaking of Jesus. We are witnesses of all the things that he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Now, all of these texts that I've shown you are Peter's sermons. And so someone might ask, well, what about Paul? Knowing that Peter is covered pretty Closely in the first several chapters of Acts, but it's Paul's ministry who's covered in the tail end of Acts. What about Paul's preaching? Did he talk about the resurrection too? Yes, he did. Chapter 13 of Acts, beginning with verse 28, says this, And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. Here it is. But God raised him from the dead. 
And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. Look at chapter 17 of Acts. One more text that I will show you. Chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Skip down to verse 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. I will emphasize to you again the resurrection was the center point of nearly every sermon preached in the book of Acts. Now, here's the question. Why? Why was it so important to them? And why is it so important to us today? Same reasons. I'll give you two. One, it's important because it's through the resurrection that we have victory over sin. Otherwise, this penalty for sin would be hanging over our head, which is death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That is what we deserve. Every single one of us, try as we may, we cannot get out from underneath that penalty of death because every one of us are sinners. And we deserve Hellfire. That's, that's what Romans 6 is talking about. That would be our lot, except Jesus has come here to save us. He came to deliver us from the penalty that was hanging over our head. He came here as one of us. He lived here for a short while. He endured all that we endure. He faced temptation just like we face temptation Except the difference is he overcame every one of those temptations. He was without sin, and yet at the appointed time, he became sin for us. That's what the cross is all about. That's what Good Friday was all about. He became sin on our behalf. He sacrificed himself for us so that we could be set free from sin. He became the sacrificial lamb for us. I was reading recently out of the book of Romans, and, and it says that it is conceivable for a man to die for a righteous man. In other words, there's times that we might see that happen, where someone would give their life for another. And when that happens, it is such a, 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 a heroic thing. But to think about somebody choosing to die for their enemy? To think about someone choosing to die for for an evil person, that's unheard of, except for the fact that that is what Jesus did for us. He loved us enough that he would die in our place while we were yet sinners, the scripture says. He didn't wait for us to, 
get better, for us to improve ourselves and then die for us. No, he died for us while we were at our worst. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I had a professor in college years ago call that the great reversal. And what he meant by that was simply this. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. We get his life, he gets our death. We get his forgiveness, he gets our punishment. That's a pretty good deal. All because of love. Greater love hath no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And once he laid his life down, three days later, he raised from the dead. And it is in the resurrection of Jesus that our victory over sin is sealed. If we put our faith in him, we have victory over sin. Our sins are washed clean. As we put our trust in him. And you know what else? Not only can we have our past sins washed away, we can have the assurance that, that in Jesus Christ we have power, we have resurrection power in us to help us do battle with the evil ones. We, we, we do not have to sin. We can have victory over sin. The sin of lust, the sin of selfishness, the sin of pride. You fill in the blank. Whatever sin it is that you are personally dealing with, you can have victory over that sin through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. I had a, had a very interesting phone call this last week from someone here in town that I, I didn't even know. Uh, I didn't know them at all. They started the conversation by saying this. I want to tell you about somebody that comes to your church. And as I heard that, I thought, oh boy, here it comes. And I braced myself for what was about to be heard. But it turned out to be just the opposite. I mean, it was, it was, it was really good. The person on the other line says, does Kenton Cowan come to your church? He drives a concrete truck here in town. I said, yes, yes, he comes to our church. And the guy said, I can tell he's a Christian. He, he, he was so nice to me. He delivered concrete to me this last week. And he was so friendly. He was so helpful. His attitude was so good. I was in a jam, he said, with concrete, and your church member got down out of his truck and right in the middle of the concrete, and he helped me. He didn't have to do that, he said. He's a Christian, I could tell. And, and as I finished that conversation with that fella, I was praising the Lord for the light of Jesus shining through Kenton Cowan. And I was thinking later as I was working on this sermon, wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be amazing if all of us 
who are a part of Community Christian Church, if we let our light shine for Jesus in that same manner, that wherever we're at, whether it's on the job or at school, uh, in, in, the, in the neighborhood, that if we let Jesus shine through us in that way, wonder what kind of an impact we could make on this community. The resurrected Jesus in us can give to us victory over sin. He can help us live a changed life. He can help us live a life that is different from the world to a point that the world would be saying, I can tell he or she's a Christian. Why is the resurrection so important? It gives to us victory over sin. Let me give to you a second point. It's in the resurrection that we have hope over the grave. And really what I'm talking to you about today is so foundational. It's it's the basics. But it's so important that we understand. This is why we celebrate Easter every year. In fact, I want you to know we celebrate Easter here every Sunday. <laughs> Jesus is alive. And that fact gives to us hope over the grave. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57 says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives to us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian can have such a unique view of, of death, instead of it being defeat and an utter despair, we can know that it is a day of victory and ultimate reward. In fact, because of Jesus in us, because of the resurrection, we can even anticipate our death, knowing that it's it's so much better on the other side than what we have here. In fact, that's why Paul could write in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What did he mean by that? It means he understood that when he walked through death's door, what he was going to find on the other side was going to be so much better than what he had here. And that's a differing view than what the person of the world has. And you can easily see the difference of that view by attending a funeral of a Christian who's passed away versus going to a funeral of someone who's not a Christian. You can see the difference in a hurry. And the difference between the two is in the hope that the Christian has. Now that doesn't mean that we do not grieve when we lose a loved one, we do grieve. We have hurts. But amidst our grief, we have hope. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And He reminds us, He comforts us, He reminds us that on the other side, the world is so much better than what we have here. That Jesus is delivering us into a world where there is no more death, no more sickness. 
No more heartache of any kind. No more pain. It's a world where no one grows old anymore. It's a world where there will be no more terrorist attacks anymore. There's no divisiveness of any kind in that world. Think with me. What's in that world that we have to deal with here? No worries in that world. No fear in that world. No more goodbyes in that world. How about this? No more political elections that we have to go through in that world. Do you know why? Because there's one on the throne and he will never be removed from it. And that is Jesus. He is Lord even over the grave. And if our loved one passes from here to there, we can rejoice for them amidst our sadness. I saw the perfect example of that even this last Monday. We had a funeral here at the church of one of our church members, Alice Clayton, and her grandson-in-law, Travis, is about to graduate from Ozark Christian. He's going to be a preacher. He's already preaching at a church in Oklahoma, and he had a part in the service, and he made reference in the service something that I grabbed hold of, of what he said. And this is what he said. He spoke of Alice's gain, our loss, but her gain. And as I heard that, I thought, my, that's, that's the truth in a nutshell. It is our loss as we say goodbye to a loved one and to a friend. And that's the sad part. That's what hurts. That's, that's the part where you know, we'll miss her. And, and, and if it's your loved one, you'll miss them. You, you, you hate to lose them, but you know where they're going to. And so you, amidst your sadness, you can rejoice for them. I remember uh, a couple of years ago when my dad passed away, uh, a couple of different times, and maybe if you've gone through this experience, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. A couple of different times after his death, I was at my mom's place, and uh, I was getting ready to leave to come home, and uh, I turned to say goodbye to my dad. He wasn't there. But I knew where he was at. You know, and at that moment, there was like a, a sword into the, the emotions. It does hurt. You miss your loved ones when you lose them. And you get through. You go through a time of grief. And God promises to be with you and help you through that time. And one of the things that helps you most is to know where they're at. That there is hope beyond the grave. That the grave is not finality for the Christian. The grave is simply a door that we walk through that ushers us into a brand new world. A better world. And in fact, the Apostle Paul knew that, and that's why he in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 writes about that new world. And this is what he says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. It's the resurrection that gives us that kind of hope. We have 
the opportunity to have a new perspective because Jesus has passed through death's door and he has come out victoriously on the other side. It's like he's, he's crawled through a tunnel, a dark tunnel. We've never been through that tunnel before and we're kind of reluctant to go through the tunnel and we're, we're a little bit afraid to go through the tunnel and all of a sudden he comes out on the other side and he lay, raises his hand of victory and he's saying, come, come follow me. It's not that bad, it's okay. And he gives us courage to go through the tunnel. Without the resurrection, we would have zero hope. When I think about the early church's response to the resurrection of Jesus, you know what I see? I see them being excited over the resurrection. I see them being consumed with the resurrection. I see them being changed by the resurrection. They could not stop speaking about what they had seen and heard. I wonder about you and me. What kind of response do we have to the resurrection of Jesus? We ought to be excited over the resurrection. We ought to be sharing with others about the resurrection. Please do not let a ho-hum spirit come over you about the resurrection. This is the greatest thing that has ever happened on planet Earth. And we need to be excited over it and sharing it with others. And you know what? The resurrection ought to make an impact on our worship. We're singing and we're praising a Lord who is alive. He has overcome the grave. He has overcome Satan. You know, death was Satan's number one weapon against mankind. And when Jesus raised from the dead, he shattered the power of the evil one. And not only should the resurrection change how we worship, the resurrection should change our own commitment to him. No longer should we be ho-hum in our commitment. No longer should we be divided in our allegiance. Rather, he should get our all because he has given us his all. And he's raised from the dead. We really should be a third day people. And, and some of you may be thinking, you know, what does that mean? What, what's it mean to be a third day people? In my mind, a third day people is simply a people who live in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he is in us and we, we are letting his light, his life shine through us to a point that people will be able to see us and say something different about them. They must be a Christian. Will you let the resurrected Christ shine through you? Will you be committed to him? That's the question we've been asking all these last few months as we've gone through the book of Acts, will you be committed to the resurrected Jesus? Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your, your gift of love to us. Thank you for his resurrection, his 
victory over the grave. And Lord, as we continue to worship here this morning, help us to worship like we really believe that he is alive. And even beyond that, help us to live like that. In Jesus' name, amen.